As we sing that song, we're reminded of the kind of God that we serve and the God that we love, a God who chases after us, who pursues us, who'll do anything to find us. And in our Lost and Found series, we've been looking at Luke 15, we've looked at lost salt, we've looked at lost sheep, lost coins, and last week, uh, Ben Corson did a fantastic job for the you know, 12 of us who survived the snow and made it here uh, to talk about what it meant to be not only a son lost in rebellion, but a son lost in religion. And I want to show you today that Jesus is going to tell one of his most bizarre, I mean bizarre parables. Like you get to the end like, what? And yet to understand how this parable is related to the whole context, it's helpful to zoom out for a moment and see what Luke and the Holy Spirit are doing to weave these together. We just finished in Luke 15 a whole series on God's heart for the lost, the parable of the lost sons. Then the Holy Spirit in Luke has placed this parable, the parable of the shrewd money changer, right here after understanding God's heart for the lost. Then he's going to go into a whole passage about true riches and serving one master. He's going to weave together the idea of God's heart for the lost, the parable today about how we view limited time, and how limited time sets us up to prioritize how we live life and our money, which is why he'll launch right out of this into the parable of what it is to have true riches, or the teaching on that. So Jesus is going to teach us today that we need to get very comfortable making friends with limited time. I don't like limited time. I'm not going to make friends with that. In fact, it's when you have limited time, you feel busy. You feel like there's never enough. Limited time reminds you of your mortality when I have more, less years in front of me than behind me. Limited time reminds you that I got a few short months before maybe your child's off to college and you're trying to cram in the last summer together. As my mom said before my daughter got married, this might be our last Christmas. We can all get together. We got to really make it good. You feel the pressure of limited time. You had these goals for retirement and now you're like, oh, we're within a few years or within a decade. Are we on track? Ooh, I don't know if we have enough time to meet those goals. We don't like limited time. And yet Jesus is going to show that when you make friends with limited time, it's going to help you make friends with unrighteous mammon. What? Unrighteous mammon, the wealth you make in this world, in order to properly understand it and properly prioritize it, you're going to have to put these two ideas together. Making friends with limited time and his phrase, make friends for yourselves by way of unrighteous mammon, which is the wealth you make in this world. And if you utilize your unrighteous mammon, you can learn to leverage it to make friendships for yourself now and into eternity. Now remember, Jesus is always teaching out of the Old Testament. And so if you look up the phrase, make friends, you'll see it pops up one time in the book of Proverbs, where the writer of Proverbs is contrasting the foolish man from the wise man. This is always happening in Proverbs. He says, the foolish man, or the foolishness of a man, twists his own way. His heart frets against the Lord. Now the contrast now is the wise or the wealthy. Wealth knows how to make many friends. Then it contrasts that to the foolish man or the poor, but 
In contrast to that, the poor get separated from his friend. Wealth, which is in the book of Proverbs, always something good. If you look up the word wealth, it's almost always God's giving you the ability to produce wealth from Deuteronomy. How do you utilize your wealth? Using your wealth to make friends is a biblical proverb. You'll build a relationship with somebody with another business. You partner with them, they partner with you. You end up both growing because of it. You find a supplier you like, you recommend it to somebody else. Friendships are developed. Relationships are developed. That wise people know how to use their wealth to leverage friendship and relationships. And Jesus is going to take that concept and he's going to teach it in the form of a parable with a bizarre twist ending. He's going to do that by giving us two principles of truth that ring true in this parable and they ring true in our life. What are those truths? Well, those truths are going to help us prioritize our life when we feel like we have a little bit of time and we're trying to figure out how to spend our life together. The first concept he shows, or the first truth, is that when we have all the time in the world, we have a tendency to waste our time and money. Isn't that true? Do you remember... When you got your first job, your first paycheck, what happened? You didn't have a lot of time or a lot of margin, so you had to count every $20 purchase, every $10 purchase. You couldn't waste anything because there wasn't a lot of time to waste. Or do you remember in college when you had two or three jobs? You didn't have time to binge watch any TV shows. You just were trying to make ends meet. But as you got better at your job, as you got more efficient at your job, as you got more margin you found that you have the ability to waste time or money in the way you didn't before. When you have all the time in the world, we have a tendency to waste our time and money. You kind of see that here in the parables it begins. Jesus says to his disciples, there was a certain rich man, and he had a steward. And this steward, and that's a word for money manager or property manager, very common in Jesus' day, and an accusation was brought against this man that he was wasting the rich man's goods. So this rich man hires a money manager to steward his resources. And that steward thinks, I got it made. I'm going to have this job for decades. And because of that, he's not particularly strategic. He's not particularly hardworking. He finds himself wasting a lot of time because I got a long time in this job. And he finds himself wasting the resources. Well, the news makes it to the rich man who had put him in charge of the property. And the rich man comes to him. It's going to hold him account. Now, there's an interesting connection here between the lost son parable and this parable. The same word wasting occurs here as the prodigal son. Remember, it said that the prodigal son took the father's inheritance and wasted it in prodigal living. So here was a rebellious person wasting the father's resources. Here we have a rich, affluent, high net worth person managing an even higher net worth person who's doing the same thing as the prodigal son, wasting the father's resources because he thinks he has all the time and money in the world. But that window is about to quickly close and as he goes from expanded unlimited time to limited time he's going to have to make some decisions so he the rich man called him and said to him hey what is this I hear about you wasting my resources 
The rich man turns to him and says, I want you to give an account. Give an account of your stewardship. And look how often the word stewardship is mentioned here in the passage. Your steward, steward, stewardship. I want you to give, you, give an account of how you're managing what I've entrusted to you. The opportunities, the talents, the relationships, the business opportunities, the wealth. Give an account of your stewardship. For, apparently he's already checked into it, as any good boss would before he had this meeting, for you can no longer be a steward. Your job is coming to an end very, very quickly. That's the thing about stewardship. It's temporary. The time you have with your children, it's short. You've got to steward it. The spouse God's given to you or will one day give to you is a stewardship. And if you think, well, we'll be married for 50 years, you take each other for granted, you haven't had a date night and who knows when, God's going to give, call you to account for how you've stewarded your talents, your time, your money, your relationships, and your family. And often it's when that window of time is shortened, oh my goodness, my spouse is threatening to leave me, oh my goodness, my daughter's about to leave for college, where has the time gone, why didn't I invest more, oh my goodness, I'm about to have a pink slip handed my way, I better do something different, I'm on a probation. That's what happens here. The steward said within himself, we get to actually hear him talking to himself here. So this is not his outside voice, this is his inside voice. He says, oh, what shall I do? My window of time is limited, for my master is taking the stewardship away from me. Oh, I cannot dig. I, I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I'm going to do. I resolve what I'm going to do. When I am put out of my stewardship, they, we'll figure who the they is in a second, they may receive me into their houses. i got to use my little bit of time and my little bit of opportunity to leverage the relationships I have so when I'm kicked out of here, I have a job and I have a place to live. So he's beginning to strategize. Things he should have done when he was working full-time with, you know, the sky's the limit. Now with a limited amount of time, he suddenly is prioritizing differently how he's going to spend his time and his relationships. And before we find out what he does, because it is bizarre... What's so amazing about this principle of stewardship, which the Bible talks about, is it really helps you assess your life. It was about 20 years ago, I was sitting in Atlanta, and I invited a friend of our church named Dan Hayes to come speak. And he gave me a question and thought that's been ringing in my heart for 20 plus years. He said, guys, we need to engage as Christians in contemplative living to contemplate and to think deeply. He said, all the easy questions have been answered. We need to be thoughtful about the ones that have not been answered. He said, here's the most important question you will answer no matter what age you are, no matter where you are in the socioeconomic um, sphere. I'm like, well, I'm on the edge of my seat. What is this, the most important question? He said, you need to sit down and contemplate and think and resolve how much is enough and what will you do with the rest? How much is enough 
And what will you do with the rest? Harvard Business Review did a study of the wealthy, and the wealthy in the world is considered anyone with a college education. You're in the top 5% of the world's population. So the wealthy, the very wealthy, and the elite wealthy. I find that all of us want a scorecard of how we're doing, how we measure success, how we know if we're being successful. It comes down to two questions they found that we all ask ourselves. Number one, am I doing better than I was before? Last week, last month, last year. And number two, am I doing better than other people? That's really hard to assess. It's kind of intangible. I don't know the condition of your marriage compared to mine. So I don't know how to measure that. I don't know the quality of your friendships, the quality of your relationships with your kids, the way you're influencing or impacting other people for Christ. And since that's so ambiguous, they found in Harvard Business Review that we try and find something tangible to measure the intangibles. And so money becomes the easiest way to do that. Well, I'm making more. I'm saving more. I've got more in my retirement. I'm giving more away. And money's important. But it becomes kind of a superficial way to answer the deeper questions in our life. That's why the, the concept of stewardship is so important. It says the way you assess purpose in your life is you say, I'm God's money manager. I'm God's family manager. I'm God's marriage manager. And I ask myself, how am I managing his resources for his purpose? If God's given you a spouse, if you're held to an account, are you investing in your spouse? Or are you just coasting? If you have kids, you only have one year with that two-year-old, and they're not two anymore. And if you don't invest in that two-year-old, or that five-year-old grandchild, it's going to be like this and they're seven, like this and they're 17. If God has given you talents and God has given you abilities, the way to manage your life is to say, these are gifts from God, this position, this title I have, this influence I have? Am I stewarding what God has given me because it's his that he's given me to manage for his purposes? I was talking to a friend of mine about a month ago and he owns a rather large company that he sold recently and is doing very, very well and his kids go to Indian Hill. And his kids are feeling the pressure, even in Indian Hill, that their family makes a lot more than his friends. So he's talking to his dad and saying, Dad, just... The comments I get from my friends all the time about how we you know, make so much more than they do. His dad was just so frustrated by this and said, you know what, first of all, tell them that you're poor because you are. You don't have anything. <laughs> he said, that's the first thing you tell them. And the second thing he said, do you know what motivates me to do what I do, to build the business that I built, to, to sell that thing? Here's the decisions I made not to spend as much as I did early on was building the company. He walked him into his office and he said, and here's something that is so motivating to me that I keep it on my desk in my office. Have you ever seen this? Typical teenager. No. Well, it's been sitting there for a decade, son. And it was a statue of a man with his hands in the air holding up his son, like the opening scene of Lion King. He said, this is so meaningful to me. This is why I do what I do. Because I am motivated by the idea that I want this generation to hold up the next generation so they can see farther and go farther than the generation before. He said, that's what motivates me. I'm stewarding for the future. 
And Jesus is saying that even more than that is to not only hold up a legacy for the next generation, but to see farther into eternity that what I do in this life needs to leverage my rewards and relationships for eternity. That's going to be his point as we get to this bizarre turn. When you have all the time in the world, you have a tendency to waste time and money. But when you only have a window of time, a short amount of time, we have no time to waste. You get crystal clear about your priorities. You get a report from a doctor that you only have two months or two years to live. You start to not waste any time. You start to prioritize your time. You realize there's only three years left before retirement. You're thinking very specifically about the allocations of your portfolio, even more so than before. When you only have a short window of time, you have no time to waste. And this man has just gotten his pink slip. For the master is taking the stewardship away from me. It was temporary. So he called every one of the master's debtors to him. Now, by the way, this parable is exactly why HR departments walk you out after you've left. (laughs) Because this man's got just enough time to do what he's doing. Because he didn't get walked out. And he goes and calls up the debtors that owe the master money. And again, this idea goes back to the parable of the two rebellious sons. One lost in rebellion, one lost in religion. What do they owe the father? What do you owe the father? Everything. Remember, the first son in rebellion lost everything, but he returns And the father gives him shoes, the sign of being a son. He's a son again. He owes his dad everything. The older son lost in religion. The father comes out to him and says, Son, do you not know that everything I have is yours? Let us feast and rejoice that he who is dead is alive again. We need to reflect on the gospel that we owe God everything. He is our master. He is our Giver of everything we steward. And this man with his limited amount of time comes and talks to these two guys. He says, okay, okay. He says, um, how much do you owe them? And this was certainly within his um, purview, by the way, to negotiate with the suppliers. He says, okay, how much? You owe a hundred. And notice the number hundred here. How much do you owe the master? He says, well, I owe him about a hundred. A hundred measures of oil, huh? Huh. Tell you what, take your bill right now and we're going to go from 100 to 50. Wow! And immediately, this supplier has an incredible view of the master. Wow, that he, not just you, but the master would be so gracious to me. The generosity of the master is now flowing through the community that he would take a bill of 100 owed and cut it down to 50. Meanwhile, the, the steward says, hey, hey, you know, no problem. Man, you cut this from 100 to 50. If I can ever do anything for you, you let me know. <laughs> I will. And soon. He goes to the next debtor. How much do you owe? Well, looks like you owe 100. Notice the number again. Measures of wheat. Notice the product. Oil, wheat. 100, 100. He says to him, tell you what. Let's cut it down from 100 to 80. 80? Oh, my goodness. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is gonna, your master is so gracious, so kind. And you know what? If there's anything I can ever do for you in the future, you let me know. <laughs> I will. And he is leveraging his little bit of time 
to prepare to have relationships and rewards and a job offer in the future. The master shows up, sees what he's done, and what's he going to do? What would you do? Can't believe you did that. How dare you do that? What have you done? In a bizarre twist, the rich man shows up, and instead of convicting the shrewd money changer, instead of spanking the money changer, he commended the unjust steward because he had dealt so shrewdly. (laughs) Pretty sharp, buddy. Pretty sharp. You used your limited window of time to leverage your time for future rewards and future relationships. Pretty sharp. If only you had done that kind of shrewdness when you worked for me full-time. You expanded the reputation of the Father as generous, and you set yourself up for success in the future. That's Jesus' point? Like, would you have concluded the parable that way? I wouldn't have. And look how Jesus expands it. He says, here's the point. For the sons of this world, people in this world, not Christians, are more shrewd in this generation. They know how to set themselves up for success. They know how to build relationships. If they're about money, they know how to leverage relationships now to build the kind of future they want, the statues they want, the houses they want. They know how to save their money now to prepare for the future by their savings accounts. But not so with the sons of light. The sons of light don't know how to leverage their short window of time on earth, their 40, 60, 80, maybe 100 years you get, and to use that window of time in such a way to leverage it for eternity so you will have rewards and relationships in eternity. And here's his phrase. For I say to you, make friends, build relationships for yourself, rewards and relationships, by means of or utilizing the unrighteous mammon the wealth you make in this temporary world. So that when you fail and die, and you will, they, the people you leveraged and impacted and told about Christ and impacted their life for the kingdom, will receive you into an everlasting home. Now remember I mentioned, he mentions the number 100 twice, and he mentions oil, and he mentions wheat. Now that's going to be important. It's important because, let me summarize the Old Testament here for you. So this is the back half of the Old Testament in one picture. So that should clear that up. (laughs) After Moses, they get into the Promised Land, the Book of Judges, for 350 years. We have a time of kings. We have King Saul, first official king. Gideon almost made it, but not quite. King David, then King Solomon. King Solomon has his heart divided. It's divided by money and foreign treaties. The kingdom gets divided into the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Assyrian Empire comes along and the Assyrian Empire, capital city Nineveh, explains why Jonah didn't like it, eats up or destroys or or devours the northern kingdom because they rebelled against God. The southern kingdom has several good kings, Josiah and Jehoshaphat, and several more, and so they last a little bit longer. But they too don't trust in God. Instead of trusting in God, they make a deal with Assyria. Well, that deal ends up being their undoing. Because Babylon shows up with King Nebuchadnezzar and swallows up Assyria. But because 
southern kingdom Judah had an allegiance with them, it swallows up the southern kingdom as well. And now for 70 years, Babylon has conquered not only Assyria, but it's conquered who Babylon had eaten up and Assyria had eaten up, which was the northern and southern kingdom. After 70 years, Persia shows up, just as God predicted through Ezekiel and Daniel, and the Persian Empire swallows up Babylon. They don't have a particular opinion about these little small uh, kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And so at that point, God fulfills a promise that the Persian king allows Ezra to take the people back to the capital city of Jerusalem, here in Israel with the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and Dead Sea. After Ezra brings back the people, later Nehemiah will come back and build the wall. And there's the back half of the Old Testament. Now, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Ezra is where we're at. So Ezra is trying to find a way to finance after 70 plus years of being away from the homeland. How do we get back and rebuild the kingdom of God in the land of God? And he's working for the king of Persia. Now with that in mind, let's look at the comparison between these passages. Notice the hundred measures of oil in Jesus' parable. Notice the hundred measures of wheat in Jesus' parable and the idea of what it means to make friends for yourself by way of unrighteous mammon. Remember, Jesus is always teaching out of the Old Testament, if you can find it. Now we're going to go to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra has a decree from Xerxes the king. I, Xerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers. Now these are Persians, not believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's going to take the treasure house of Persia and do what with it? That whatever Ezra the priest, and he's not like a priest of the Persian gods, he's a priest of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he has so leveraged his relationships, so leveraged his influence with the king of Persia, the king of Persia is like, you know what? I want to be part of what you're doing. I want to finance what you're doing. I don't believe in your God, but that sounds like kind of a good thing. I want to leverage the resources of Persia to help finance your journey back to your God's homeland. And what does he give him? Notice. Let it be done diligently up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, which is bushels. Notice the number 100 and notice wheat. Same number Jesus used in the parable. He goes on. 100 baths of wine. The word bath can also be used as the word measure. It's about six to eight gallons. Notice the next one, 100 baths or measures of oil, the exact thing used in the parable. And salt without prescribed limit, whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, not my God, but the God of over all heavens, let it diligently be done for the house of God. What has Ezra done? He has made friends with unrighteous mammon. He's utilized the resources of the world he's in to leverage it to build God's kingdom on earth. And God is saying that's exactly, Jesus is saying that's exactly what I want you to do with the time I've given you. I want you to see your life as a stewardship where you leverage your time, your resources, your networks to leverage the kingdom, to build relationships and rewards in the future. We have a team going down to Belize this week. And over the last 15 years, that's what you've seen. Folks go down to Belize and they see a need. And they get down the need and they don't come back and go, you know what we need? We need Horizon to, to navigate all the generosity of all the ideas I have. They go, no, no Horizon's not going to be able to figure that out. But I can. You got a need here for, for medical equipment? Huh. I go back and go, 
well, I know lots of people who throw away medical equipment all the time. I'm going to leverage the resources I have and suddenly tonnage, tonnage of medical equipment were sent to Belize because somebody made friends with unrighteous mammon. A Christian ministry began to grow because people said we like to bless people who have needs. They don't have an ultrasound in any of the hospitals in Belize? No. Well, I'd get access to an ultrasound. I've got a network with so-and-so and I think I could get that donated and I think I could give a week of my vacation time to go down there and train the doctors. And all of a sudden, the only ultrasound in any of the governments in Belize was trained by one of our doctors who leveraged their resources, leveraged their talents, leveraged the people they knew to get those things into a place where the kingdom of God could be promoted by meeting people's physical needs so they'd be open to spiritual needs. What if you began to think of every aspect of your life as stewardship? But it wasn't stewarded just to keep upgrading your life. But God has given me his resources and talents and relationships and networks to expand his kingdom by making friends with unrighteous mammon. So that like Ezra, we use our money, our relationships, our time, our resources, our networks to expand the kingdom. And like the man in the parable, so that in the future, how we manage our first home, when we fail or die, we're set up for an everlasting home. And that's the key takeaway. The key takeaway for Jesus that this bizarre parable says is use your window of time on earth to guarantee rewards and relationships in the future. Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, wealth, that when you fail, you may, they may receive you into an everlasting home. That how you manage your earthly home or life sets you up for your ultimate second home. Since you had to have a second home. Now we're talking about the ultimate second home, one that moth cannot eat and rust cannot destroy. That how you steward your life on this home sets you up for an everlasting home. Doesn't earn your way into heaven, of course. But your rewards are different. Not everyone here is well done, my good and faithful servant. I had an opportunity last week to sit down with a friend that I've been building a relationship with for about five years. And this is a person who is religious but doesn't particularly believe in Jesus or God and is really wrestling with their faith. This person was going through an educational career crisis several years ago and some things came falling apart in his life. So I called him up and I said, hey, man, I hear you're going through a tough time. I'd love to just chat. He says, yeah, I think I'd like that. So we went out jet skiing together and we spent most of the time not jet skiing but sitting by the side of the river and lake just chatting. He said, I'm just really depressed. I thought I was supposed to do this. I feel like a failure. I don't know what to do. So we talked a lot about life and very little about God. Got to the end and I said, you know, I don't know if this would be helpful, but I just finished a series at our equipping service about depression and some of God's tools for getting out of it. He said, oh, I'd like that. So I did a series a couple years ago called Playing with Fire, all about Elijah's journey with depression. I said, would you mind me if I send you a copy of the link? He said, sure. So I sent that to him. That was three years ago. So we're chatting at lunch two days ago or three days ago, and he's just like a Pez dispenser of great questions. I believe there might be an intelligent creator, but I'm not sure he's really God. How do we know that Christianity's right and not other religions? And just an hour and a half, great conversation. My son's there, I'm there, my friend's there. He said, by the way, I remember three years ago when I was going through that crisis. You know that podcast you gave me? I'm like, 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember, I totally forgotten about it. He said, you know, I listened to that thing like 20 times. He said, it was just so helpful. And even just hearing the voice of someone I knew, of course, speaking to me when I had all these dark voices of depression going on. And as we're having this conversation, I've been inviting him to church for five years. I don't know if he's going to be here in the next two or the next ten. But I thought, you know what, there's a lot of things I could have spent my money on that day instead of buying more gas for my jet ski or not spending time with my kids for those hours or, or not you know, spending an hour and a half at lunch with a friend for dinner. But I'm investing my time, my money, my resources, my thinking about these difficult questions that I've wrestled with for years because I want to help my friend understand who God is so that I can be with him for eternity. And often with all the things we pack our lives and we just don't have time to invest in people far from God, people who are wrestling with their faith, people who are kicking the tires on faith. And what Jesus is saying is you've got to leverage your time in the community you're in, the, the neighborhood you're in, the people you're around to find a way to not do it in a weird way, but in a very natural way, leverage the relationships so that you can be with those friends you love for eternity. I mean, I hope one day I'll get to heaven and I'll shake hands with people who say, Chad, I listened to some podcast that somebody in your church sent to me and I'm here today because of what you prepared and what somebody shared. I hope there are so many surprises you find in heaven of ways you invested your money or your time, the way you persevered in a difficult time with a son or daughter or with your marriage. And God said, well done, well done. When I took an account of your life, I'm going to bring stuff up you forgot about, and there are great rewards for how you've stewarded your life. If you head up to Dayton, there's a guy in Dayton who's got a big sign on his business that says, Jesus is the answer. Have you ever seen it? Well, he decided early on to take this principle in life very seriously. When he was in his 20s, the business was doing well, he started giving away several percentages of income, probably like 10 or 11%, to God priorities. Every year, he and his wife decided they were going to up their giving to God's priorities by 1%. They've been doing that about 40, 50 years now. Last I heard, he was giving away 90% of his income. And his take-home pay has never gone lower. Why would God not keep entrusting to him more who's willing to leverage what he's giving him now for priorities later? Like, well, I would never do that. I'm not saying you should do that. The guy, that sounds crazy. Does it? Or does it sound like somebody who knows you can't take it with you, but you can pay it forward? You can send it on ahead. There's somebody in a radical way who got it. What does it look like for you to make friends for yourself with unrighteous mammon? we've got some several announcements coming up in the next four to six weeks. In the last year, we've been raising money because one of the ways we're doing this as a church is by creating video services to create more tools and so that we can launch one, two, maybe up to five new services in the next five years because we need space for people to come and hear about Jesus, both in our equipping and exploring service. So we're in the final stages of that. We're going to be giving some announcements about just some of the generosity and the way in which God has continued to use your generosity over the last year to help us prepare for our next stage. And we're in the final pieces of that. We've been raising a million dollars for video equipment and future services and redesigns. You're going to start seeing uh, information about that coming out in the next six weeks. But if you have not yet leveraged your wealth, your mammon, to help reach future relationships, 
This might be the chance to think about that and to pray about that and to make that pledge here in the next few weeks as we're in the final stages of that million-dollar raise and the 200000 operational cost to run the additional services. Because I'm hoping you have friends you're building relationships with. And we're going to be in heaven one day. And I want to hear those words to you and to me from our Father. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this weird but powerful message about what it means to act shrewdly with the time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. As you leave today, speaking of a shrewdness, uh, Ken Kington is going to be back on February um, for our Sunday night, Monday night men's studies. So if you want to learn how to be a better leader and influence in your family, you can check that in the program. It's going to be on February the 10th on Sunday night and on Mondays at the 11th, a brand new series about how to find purpose and meaning in stewarding our life as fathers. See you all next week.